So can psoriatic arthritis occur on only one finger? Definitely. Uh, it's not rare to see psoriatic arthritis present just as dactylitis or uh, even uh, a typical swelling of one finger or a DIP or PIP joint. Look for the psoriasis. What is the role of chondroitin and glucosamine in osteoarthritis? Almost nothing. Um, the placebo effect, unfortunately, in those studies were very high, like 35%. Uh, and none of them meant, none of them were better than placebo, whether they were glucosamine alone, chondroitin alone, or the combination. In the literature, there are people claiming that the pharmaceutical grade, the ones that are by prescription, you know, like, like uh, Dona made by the Italian company Rotter had good data, whereas the, the Costco cheap brands, <laughs> Kosami and all that, doesn't work. Well, I'll put it this way. People have radio label glucosamine. It doesn't, go up in, doesn't show up in the joint. So what does it do? We don't know. So I think uh, it's more of a placebo effect. But then treating OA, what have you got, right? I mean, not a lot. So if they do well on a supplement, I don't discourage them. If the supplement is A, cheap, B, not toxic, because in a few months, they'll be onto a different supplement. So there's no good evidence that glucosamine and chondroitin do very much. Is there a role for prednisone in severe joint pain, even osteoarthritis? There's no role for prednisone in osteoarthritis. There's no role for prednisone in fibromyalgia. Why? A, they all feel better on prednisone. But the problem is because prednisone makes everybody feel better if you take enough of it. And when you withdraw the prednisone, fibromyalgia flares like crazy. Those of you who have treated asthma with a big reducing cost of prednisone, when you stop for a brief period, they got a lot of joint pains. That's because you induce a state of hyperreactivity. So we don't use to treat uh, fibromyalgia with prednisone. And the same reasoning, we never use opioids in fibromyalgia because opioids also cause opioid-induced hyperalgesia. So your brain gets sensitized to the opioids. They start to become tachyphylactic. You start with a little bit, you get more and more, and it stops working. Now when you withdraw, you got opioid to deal with, not just fibro. The toughest patients you see are those who are mismanaged, with fibromyalgia of long-standing and long-standing opioids, you've got to kind of detoxify them, get them off the opioids, then try to manage the fibro. So that's not going to work. So anything that really sensitizes the brain is counterproductive. Do you think bisphosphonates or rang ligand for osteoporosis increase pain and worsen the condition in OA? No, I don't. Uh, it's not that direct. These are all statistical. In other words, don't try to get osteoporosis. Just protect yourself from, from getting OA, you know? Why not paralyze yourself? Then you don't get OA anyway, all right? So don't do that. So all I'm saying is that the softening of the bone and the thickening of the bone may have dynamic actions. And when the bone is thicker, it actually works against osteoarthritis. I'm not saying by any means that you should not be using proper treatment for osteopenia and osteoporosis if you meet the FREX criteria. So should we not recommend increased activity with hands? Not really. Uh, I don't think Felsen's right. I still eat sushi, you know. Um, so I wouldn't worry too much about it. I think if you do exercises judiciously, 
maybe uh, see a physical therapist once or twice, learn what to do for your bad knee or your hands or whatever, and just do them. But uh, <clears throat> don't do things that are counterproductive. For example, if you've got bad knees, don't do knee bends. You know, what's the point, right? You know, unless your sergeant is telling you to do it. You know? um, is this the same as Charcot-Marie tooth disease? No, it is not. Uh, Charcot is Charcot. Charcot-Marie tooth is a degenerative neurologic disease where they get atrophy of their, their muscles in their legs. They get wasting of the first osteointeroceus. Uh, so Charcot-Marie tooth is a different disease uh, from Charcot arthritis. But good thinking, same guy, okay? Uh, what is your drug of choice and dose for OA pain complaints? I start with the NSAIDs. Uh, usually they work very well, and you may choose between different NSAIDs to find one that works the best for your patient. Um, you might want to use full dose. So if I'm going to use naproxen, I might start with 375 BID or 500 BID with food until I get the symptoms under control, and then I back off. And if they're asymptomatic or doing well, but every time they play golf or they do something, they get the arthritis symptoms, then I, pre I do it one hour before planned activity. But don't, don't use the NSAID continually because as you know, in older people, now you run into trouble with blood pressure, with the kidney, with all the other problems. So use it intermittently. And there's no one special NSAID that works any better than any other NSAID. When these drugs were blinded, they all work exactly the same. But everybody have their own poison, right? So you might have to go through a number of them to find one that is best tolerated and least obnoxious. And if they are sensitive in the stomach, then some of the newer generation, like meloxicam, may be a little better tolerated than the older generation. Uh, if you have a cardiovascular history, we now think that diclofenac is the biggest offender, not Celebrex, not the COX-2 inhibitors. So if you have a strong background history, of cardiovascular problems, high blood pressure, a previous heart attack, whatever. Number one, use NSAIDs very judiciously and intermittently. Number two, maybe avoid diclofenac. So Voltaren would not be a good choice. Now, di di Voltaren gel is fine. Voltaren gel, only 140th gets absorbed by the body, 140th. So none of the problems that you see with oral diclofenac will you get from diclofenac gel. Uh, gels are safe. The only problem is that gels may be placebo, right? Number one. Number two, uh, they may cause local skin irritation or something like that. Um, discuss mucus cysts in the index finger. Mucus cysts in the index finger is one of the complications of Heberdine's nodes or osteophytes in the finger. Uh, you can jab it a little bit and express the stuff, but it comes back. If it keeps coming back and it bugs the patient, they need surgery to have the cyst uh, removed and maybe have the synovial tissue uh, resected. 72-year-old, um, oh. how do you prevent these pains when younger before it becomes an issue? Um, okay, how do you prevent osteoarthritis? Die early, I guess, you know. Uh, <laughs> So, the longer you live, the higher the risk. <laughs> anyway, so the way to do it is to stay active every day, not gain weight. 
we talked about weight, you know. Weight is a big offender. There's a wonderful study from Wake Forest University called the IDEA trial, I-D-E-A, I-D-E-A. The IDEA trial was to take people with OA of the knees and make them lose 10% of their body weight over 18 months. Not a big deal, right? 10% year and a half. And to exercise every day. So they have three groups, exercise alone, diet alone, or combo. The best is the combo. They lose more weight, and they're much more fit, and they cut down their knee pain by way over 50%. So just by doing that, the knee pain becomes acceptable, tolerable, they can function, and they improve their physical activity by 50%, like distance walk, for example, before this uh, pain and so on. So the OA is prevented by having good parents so you don't get Calgrins, uh, by having controlling your weight and exercise. 72-year-old woman with bilateral knee pain exacerbated when coming downstairs, knee x-rays negative or anything, provided other physical therapy, knee support, is this enough? Any other suggestions? Any other tests? Um, if, it's, if it's no effusion, clinically it looks like OA. Even though the x-rays don't show much, it probably is OA. If you're really anal about it, you can get an MRI and you probably see some changes that you don't see on plain films. But the treatment is the same and would be what I recommend, that it's loose weight exercise and maybe a knee support. Uh, the FDA has just approved, by the way, a patch now that you can turn on called Acti patch or something. You can stick it in your knee and it's battery operated and it will cut down on the pain. And apparently, you can try that. You know, that may be one way to go. Um, in patients who have asymptomatic RA, is treatment still indicated to prevent progression? Asymptomatic RA is a myth. So in the old days, we have three types of progression. Type 1, they get bad RA, it goes down, and it never comes back. That is fake news, OK? Not true. Those people probably have a virus or something else. They may have parvovirus B19. We think that can cause inflammatory arthritis for a year or beyond. Recently, we have chikungunya that can cause arthritis for a year and then disappear. True RA never goes away. It's going to be either smoldering like this or it takes off like a rocket. So RA probably always need treatment. You have to look at the patient very critically and decide. Most of the studies that we do, even when we put them on, let's say, methotrexate, low-dose prednisone, and a TNF inhibitor, they're in remission, we cut down and stop the prednisone. When we try stopping methotrexate, we might succeed. But when we stop the TNF inhibitor, about 60% will flare sometime down the line, even if you have treated it for years and years. So true asymptomatic RA is probably not going to be around. So, but the other question is, when do you get RA, right? What if you have a mother that has very bad crippling RA, and, the, and, the, and, the, and her daughter come and see you, and she has some joint complaints? You examine her, and her joints are totally normal, and her complaints are minimal. But when you do the blood test, her CCP is very high. What do you do? Cedric's normal. CRP is normal, they don't have clinical RA, but she's got CCP positive disease, and she's got a mother with bad RA. What do you do? Big answer, we don't know what to do. We follow them, don't just lose them to sight. 
We tell them that if they get symptoms, so please come back and see me. There are now several studies going on, still not completed, to look at pre-RA. One is to give them rituximab, which is a B-cell depleter, every six months for two years, and see if the incidence of progression is lower than the ones that didn't get treated. The other is to put them on methotrexate for a defined period. The third is to put them on a drug called abatacept, which is a T-cell modulator for a defined period. Those studies are very preliminary, and we have no recommendation that you do that. I mean, she has no symptoms. All she has is the CCP. But those people may go on and develop RA, unfortunately. So pre-RA is a real phenomenon. Can you speak to the incidence of lymphoma and biologics? The answer is that lymphoma probably doesn't go up in risk in people on biologics. That's the firm conclusion. At the beginning, when people were treated with biologics, they have doubled the incidence of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma compared to the general population. But the problem is that they're comparing it to the general population. When they compare it to RA match, there is no increased risk there. Now that we have used uh, Ambro from 1999 till now, so over 20 years, we have used uh, Humira for maybe 15 years. So we have about 20, 30 years of experience with TNF blockers, and we have a pretty long experience with the uh, IL-6 modulators, the T-cell, B-cell, taken as a whole group. Lymphoma risk is not elevated in prolonged biologic use. So that is not a problem. The problem with biologics, and always the problem, is that you are immunosuppressing them. So the problem is serious infection, opportunistic infection, reactivation of TB, those are real problems. So whenever you treat somebody with a biologic, you are actually immunosuppressing their immune system. I warn them, if they start having fever for no damn reason, they start losing weight, they start just not feeling well, or they get a cough that doesn't go away, or the sinuses feel blocked all the time, please come in and see me, because that's how it is. The problem with being on a biologic is that you inhibit the inflammatory response, so they don't feel really sick until the bottom drops out. So I've had patients that would rupture their gallbladder and develop peritonitis and have minimal symptoms, and then they get the systemic effects because of sepsis, then they get sick, so be very careful. But lymphoma is not the big issue now. Solid tumors don't seem to go up much either. So for solid tumors, if it's more than five years ago, we feel very comfortable using any of the biologics. Solid tumors that are less than five years old, you want to work closely with the oncologist, who usually doesn't care anyway, right? They want to go ahead and use it, you know? Um, in the old days, when we have somebody with a solid tumor, we used rituximab as our biologic. Nowadays, we don't say that anymore. So most biologics are probably okay, but obviously, you need to have a high index of suspicion. Um, can you see tendon ruptures in OA? Usually traumatic, not by itself. Do TNF inhibitors always stop the joint changes in RA and AS? Almost always. Actually, TNF inhibitors prevent joint progression and damage better than they treat symptoms. And that applies to both ankylosing spondylitis and rheumatoid arthritis. In other words, if you put somebody on a TNF inhibitor and they go into remission, you probably don't need to repeat x-rays every year. It's not going to change. 
They're better for the x-ray than the patient. The patient may not feel all that much better, but the x-rays aren't going to progress. So it's an irony. So yes, they do prevent progression. What are your thoughts on knee pain, young woman, less than 50, obese, with negative x-rays, and rheumatoid labs? Okay, what about obesity, okay? Here's the problem with obesity. Obesity and fibromyalgia is a major problem. Why? People who have a BMI above 30 have statistically higher set rates, higher CRPs. Not in the inflammatory range, but in the highly sensitive range. So you see a CRP that is like less than one milligram per deciliter, but 0 0.6, 0 0.7, 0 0.8, where they say, quote unquote, normal is less than 0.5. Set rate would be 25, even 30, but not like 100, like you see in polymyalgia, you know? A little bit high. We now know that the inflammatory markers pick up two different signals. They pick up very active inflammatory disease, like RA, RA, and lupus, and so on. But they also pick up activity of adipose tissue in producing low-grade inflammatory cytokines. Adipose tissue produce IL-6, interleukin-6, which drives inflammation, but at a very low level in obesity, but enough to screw up the blood test. So be very wary. If you have fibromyalgia, you find no tender joints, but the set rate is 30, but the BMI is 35. Don't say that's a marker that she has lupus and she's ANA positive, okay? Forget it, that's not lupus. So be very wary about obesity. It can drive up the parameters. The second problem with obesity besides osteoarthritis where the weight-bearing joints is in the inflammatory disease. People with RA, psoriatic arthritis, who are over, overweight need higher doses of medicine than those that do. A, because of milligrams per kilogram, but B, again, because the cytokines are being produced by obese tissue, by adipose tissue. So they are harder to treat. So obesity, which as you know, is a national problem, right? Uh, I think the recent statistics show that taken all states together, uh, BMI over 30 was 58% of the population. 58%. Crazy. Um, what testing do you recommend for suspected psoriatic arthritis? Examine the patient, look for the psoriasis. Get a set rate, get a CRP. Uh, rheumatoid factors, CCP, are not that useful in psoriatic arthritis. CCP is actually positive in 17% of people with psoriatic arthritis. One seven. But their disease is no different than the ones that are CCP negative. It doesn't drive the disease. What is my point? My point is that the labs are not reliable. It's always the patient. The labs have to fit the patient. Why am I telling you don't do ANAs in general population? Because lupus is a very rare disease. The incidence of lupus, maximum prevalence, it's four per thousand. That's young African-American females, four per thousand. ANA is positive in well over 99% of lupus patients. The newest criteria for diagnosing SLE states, if your ANA is negative, you don't have lupus. Forget it. So ANA has to be positive. ANA negative lupus is a figment of your imagination now. 
because the tests are so sensitive. You pick up 99% of people. So you say, wow, that's a great test. Why don't I do it more often? Because it has a false positivity of 15%. Think about it. 1,000 women with aches and pains come to your clinic. They all get ANAs. You're going to pick up four lupus. You're going to pick up 150 people who don't have lupus, who don't even have a rheumatic disease. They're just like you and me. I mean, if I do this room, it's going to be 15%. So the positive predictive value of an ANA in this setting, aches and pains, is 4 divided by 154, which is 2.6%. Why would you do a test at about 2.6% positive predictive value? And that's the problem with positive ANA. The rarer a disease, the more difficult it is for you to screen for it. You cannot screen for rare diseases because you're going to pick up a lot of false positives. Does turmeric really have an anti-inflammatory effect for RA? Yes, but very weak. So even when you take it till you turn yellow and look like a Chinaman, it's not going to make the RA much better. So turmeric doesn't work very well. Um, ANA CRP elevated, negative rheumatoid factor, history of back pain, joint pain many years, could it still be RA uh, or psoriatic arthritis? It could be almost anything. That patient needs a good history and needs to be examined in that context. Uh, the positive ANA could be noise, you know. Um, so what possible diagnosis for a patient with blood work of alkaline phosphatase uh, 1,400, ALT 160, hepatitis panel negative. They probably do have hepatitis, right? Um, that are not what picked up by your panel, you know? Any special diet or acupuncture for fibro? Okay, I'll spend a minute talking about fibromyalgia. What do I do? Number one, I reassure them that they have a condition that is very common, affects three to six million people. I'll say, you know, Mrs. Jones, let me tell you about some symptoms that you haven't told me. And I'll go over the list. They say, oh yeah, I got that too, I got that too. So you reassure them that it is a common problem. You reassure them that despite the bizarre presentation, all their symptoms fit into this paradigm of central sensitivity. And I explain it to them what it is. Your body is normal, but it's getting signals and making them uncomfortable in your brain, and then you're feeling it but your body actually has nothing wrong. It's just your, your, the sensation coming out. And they'll say, well, yeah, you're just telling me to brush me off. I said, well, no, you can actually do a study now. There's something called functional MRI. You take a woman with fibromyalgia and put an MRI unit on her brain and look at oxygen consumption in the brain, okay? You, you put pressure on the thumb and you put a little bit of pressure and it should go, ow, it really hurts part of the brain will light up. You now take a normal person, take her who's normal, and do the same thing. And you say, I don't feel anything. And you keep going until it hurts. The same place will light up. So what does it mean? It means that your fibro patient's not malingering. I mean, she could be malingering, especially if there's a lawsuit, right? But otherwise, she's telling you exactly what she feels, but the brain is magnifying that signal. So we do things to try to, to desensitize the brain. And the best Treatment is cognitive behavior therapy. Next best is physical therapy, exercise, yoga, non-pharmacologic. Non-pharmacologic therapy is the major mainstay of treating fibromyalgia. 
explaining the patient what's going on, de-emphasizing a lot of the symptoms, tell them that they shouldn't go from doctor to doctor to doctor and waste their resources looking for if only you found this virus or whatever, you know? So dissuade them from doing that. Protect them from your colleagues. God forbid there's a guy that want to do epidural blocks, trigger point injections, batteries in their brain, rhizotomy, or worse still, fuse your neck or your back because it hurts. All they're going to do is create more symptoms so they don't get better. So you need to do that and then use medicines very judiciously. And what we do is really improve sleep. So I use doxepin drops. So I use doxepin liquid. I tell them to take six drops at night. That's three milligrams of doxepin. That puts them into a deep enough sleep. They wake up more refreshed. Hopefully, they don't get a hangover. If they do, I drop the dose further, you see? And you, you're going to use a tricyclic. Use tiny, tiny doses. Because sensitivity, sensitivity to medicine is another fibromyalgia symptom. They come in with a list of drugs they're allergic to. And every one of them is the common side effect accentuated. It's not a rash. It's not they couldn't breathe. It is whatever the drug tends to cause in you and me, but in limited, and it becomes expanded. So use tiny doses. Use polypharmacy. Use a little bit of this, a little bit of that, rather than one big dose of something. So we combine little drops at night with maybe duloxetine in the morning if they're depressed, and I slowly raise the dose, or maybe gabapentin at night, or maybe the combo. So you use small doses, and you build it up, and use uh, polypharmacy, and tell them right up that I can relieve maybe 50% of your pain. Never say I can get all your pain gone. It's not going to happen. So you say, how would you like that? Oh, I feel like I win the lottery if I drop 50%. So that's what you want to do. So emphasize that. Tell them don't give up their job. Stay active. If they have overweight, lose weight, because that provokes it. Smoking apparently jacks up the symptoms of fibromyalgia also. So fibro is not easy to treat, but it's really the whole picture that you need to concentrate on. Um, can someone who initially responded well to a TNF inhibitor become less responsive or unresponsive to it? So what do you do? Good question. For some reason, autoimmune diseases seem to operate with one major pathway. When you block it, they get better. Then over time, they start to recruit other pathways and it becomes not active anymore. My experience has been that 60 to 80% of the time, within one to two years, a particular TNF inhibitor will work very well, but sometimes it will stop working. If they stop working, but they did very well, I would use another TNF inhibitor and it might work again. So for example, if they were on Ambro for two years and it stopped working, I could use Simzia or Humira or another or Radicate or another TNF inhibitor. If they fail right at the beginning, they never work, I change class. I wouldn't use the same class because that pathway uh, may not be effective. Don't combine two biologics. There's really no good evidence that hitting them with two pathways are very beneficial. Side effects will weigh up, especially infection. So we never combine biologics. We use one, we quit, we go to the other. The small molecules that are being shown now uh, the, the gen Janus kinase inhibitors, Zalgens, Alumian, um, Rinvo, are spectacular drugs. I mean, they work as well, if not better than the biologics. 
They're very rapid acting, they're oral, and they work very well. They cover a lot more cytokines than the, than, than the old injectables because they block all the interferons and they block a whole bunch of innovations. The problem with these small molecules is that the FDA is hamstringing the dose, a lot of them, because side effects starts to mount when they take a really high dose, effective dose, and that is the Achilles heel. Because we find, for example, shingles start to go up, you know, as you take higher doses. And more recently, uh, uh, with the biologics, we find that cardiovascular disease may, may go up if you raise the dose. So they're being used on a lower dose. But you can use any of these, just don't use them in, in combination. Um, CBD oil, any benefit? That's going to be a whole lecture. No solid data. So CBD is all, like, you know as much as I do, okay? Literature is very sparse. But we all end up using it, partly because we think it's better than using opioids. You know, so we use either the rub or oral. Um, and it's not true that it has to be all CBD, non-THC. It may be blending in the two. It's still a work in progress. But I, I would stay tuned. I think that may be the future, where we know how to use the cannabinoids in a, in a responsible and in an effective fashion, but th that data is still out. Uh, I must admit that we do use CBD mainly for fibromyalgia. I don't use it for RA. I've got lots of better things. Uh, and OA, if you want to try it. Um, can you comment on the use of metformin in fibromyalgia? Uh, probably bullshit. Uh, <coughs> I know Frank Domino tells you about it, I tell it's nonsense, okay. I reviewed a paper with, with Frank, actually. Um, it, it is, number one, it, it really has nothing to do with, uh, with insulin metabolism. It's really nothing much that metformin covers that makes any sense in the context of fibromyalgia. Secondly, that one paper that was presented from England had results like 100% better. Every time you see 100% better, you know it's craziness, you know? And, and the data is just not solid, so I, I don't think it does much of anything. What is considered a normal set rate? Normal set rate should be 20 or less by Westergren. As you get older, very old, maybe 30, it creeps up a little bit with age, but not much. Um, the problem with set rate is it's totally nonspecific. Set rate is how fast red cells settle in the tube. The biggest cause of sed rate when everything is not inflammatory, let's say you've got a 70-year-old person, sed rate is 80. There's nothing wrong with that. Do a serum protein electrophoresis. A lot of them are muggers. They have a monoclonal gammopathy of unknown origin, and what happens is that when they have a spike in either light chain or, uh, or a gamma globulin, it causes the red cells to stick, and that greatly increases the sed rate. If you take a column of oil and you put pennies in it, it will slowly go down. You stack the penny like this and let it go, boom, it'll go down like that. So the viscosity, the, the, the sheer effect, and the ability for RBCs to aggregate would cause the set rate to go very high. And usually it's an abnormal paraprotein because the electric charges on the RBC is affected and they're sort of repelling each other, they stick, and you get this globule. So do a, do a SPEP, Maybe do an IEP if you really worry about multiple myeloma or plasma cytoma. You know, that's the setting. Oh, I guess we ran out of time. Thank you.